Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. This podcast features proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. Join me, MD Hawk, and my co-host Natalia Krutovska as we deconstruct the journey of medicine with our guests. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today, we have here with us Dr. Leela Atale. Dr. Atale is a recent board-certified dermatologist. She went to UCLA and graduated with honors in psychobiology. Dr. Atale received her medical degree from Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and graduated among the top of her class. She completed her residency at Western University Dermatology Program. During medical school, Dr. Atale traveled to Costa Rica and in to both learn about the healthcare systems and study tropical diseases, especially leprosy. Later, she participated in medical missions in Ethiopia, Dominican Republic, and Guatemala. Currently, she serves as an assistant professor at the Western University Dermatology Program, and she has a calling for teaching and mentoring students and residents. In her spare time, she loves all forms of dance and travel, and currently she practices both general and cosmetic dermatology for adult and pediatric patients. So without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Adelaide to the inn. Hi guys, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, let's jump right into it. So why don't we start off with the classic question, why medicine? Who or what inspired you? Yeah, so I wanted to be a doctor since I was so young that I don't even remember why. I just remember I wanted to help people and that's why I became a doctor. Well, that's why I wanted to become a doctor. Are there things that motivate you today? Perhaps personal life experiences, the different aspects of patient care, et cetera? Yes, um, patient care is a big part of it. I love taking care of patients of all ages and meeting new people. And I'm naturally a social person. So it's kind of, it's a nice way to meet many people in a short amount of time, but also take care of the most important thing that matters, um, which is their health. Yeah, of course. Another general question, but what would you say is the best and worst part of your job? Just as a doctor overall, it doesn't have to pertain to dermatology. Oh, okay. So the best part of my job is definitely seeing all the patients. I learned so much from them, not only about their skin and their health, but I get to know them as a person. So I've learned recipes, I've gotten mm -hmm. travel recommendations. So that's a really fun extra bonus of being uh, in my position. Uh, the worst part, I wouldn't say there really is a worst part, which speaks highly of my field. I guess it is exhausting sometimes. And if you're not in a bad, if you're in a bad mood, it's hard to kind of always be happy and you kind of have to be happy and proactive at all times. So if you are struggling that day, it could be a challenge because you are interacting with so many people. Um, and sometimes what's hard is you take home whatever's going on with them at home. So if they're having a bad day, sometimes you kind of feel bad or if they get a new diagnosis, whether it's because of you or due to, you know, their other health issues that that can weigh on you heavily. Yeah. Mm. So in your introduction, we mentioned briefly that you've done a few medical mission trips during medical school in Costa Rica and India. How was that? What was most surprising about your time there healthcare-wise? Yeah, so I, I felt like a lot of my medical school and graduate work or residency work was based on the feeling that I didn't get to travel during undergrad. I never had studied abroad in undergrad, and I really, really recommend that to everybody. Uh, for me, I loved 
going internationally, seeing patients of all different backgrounds. So I spent some time in India where my family lives uh, and I got to stay with them. And I worked at a teaching hospital where I got to learn dermatology from their perspective. And literally I saw leprosy pretty much every day. And that's such a stigmatized condition. And it was really nice to kind of take the stigma away and learn about it. And so that's what I did in India. And then in Costa Rica, I was just learning generically about the healthcare system, the difference between private healthcare and public healthcare and access to medicine. Was there like a divergence and or a difference rather in the medical system and other countries compared to how it is here today? Yeah. So for example, you don't have as many regulations like HIPAA. Uh, a lot of the medications are over the counter and you can just go anywhere and get them yourself. You don't necessarily need a prescription. That's not, of course, there's exceptions to that and it's probably changed since I was there. But what was cool was we would have patients come in and it would be a group of us doctors trying to diagnose them. And many patients would come in and we wouldn't really worry about privacy as much unless there was a sensitive area. But then oh, another interesting thing as part of a residency is when the attending would walk in, all of the residents would stand up and medical students would stand up, which is really interesting, the kind of respect, which we see a lot in the OR, but we don't really see that um, anymore. Nobody stands up for me, which is good because I'm not that tall, so I don't need them to, to um, tower over me. <laughs> Uh, so what I also wanted to talk about was dermatology. So dermatology is a very hyper-competitive field because of its promising work-life balance. What about it appealed to you? Why dermatology? Or was there just an appeal to working with the largest human organ? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I had considered everything. And that's what I'd recommend to young, you know, pre-med or med students is you never know what, what's going to happen. The president of the surgery club ended up doing IM, which is internal medicine. So you never know what you're going to end up doing. I was interested in peds, sports medicine, neurology. At the time, I was really convinced I wanted to be a neurologist. And my mom had told me, why don't you job shadow Dr. Bell, which is his doctor locally. Um, I went to high school with his daughters. And so Dr. Bell actually let me shadow him. And it was so interesting. And I kept asking him what he was doing. And then I went home and I read and I was starting to read even on Fridays and Saturdays when my friends wanted to go out and I actually just wanted to read, which I knew that was kind of interesting. So I, ever since then I got the bug and I was completely obsessed with it. I even had a, a website before it was cool um, about how much I wanted to be a dermatologist. Yeah, I mean, the passion, it just it just really speaks for itself. You also mentioned something in the beginning uh, when you were talking about dermatology and your practice right now. And this kind of has to go hand in hand with the longitudinal continuity with patients. Is that something that you really emphasize in dermatology? Yeah, actually, I see patients. So a lot of my patients refer, that's how I get more patients is they refer other patients to me. So I see multiple families of patients where I not only know the whole family, but I know their cousins and I know their cousins' kids and I know their neighbors. And so it is like this whole family environment where they want to invite me over for a barbecue. And I get to know them really well because now I've been practicing for a few years now. And even in residency, some of those patients I kept. So it's been a real journey and I really enjoy it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Also seems like a lot of family barbecue invitations from all your patients. <laughs> and so you also serve as an assistant clinical professor at the Western University Dermatology Program, and you enjoy mentoring students on the side when time permits. 
Um, and so some doctors, of course, will have a percent split throughout the week with maybe devoting time to 10% research, 20% administrative, and the rest being clinical. Do you maintain a balance between various categories or what exactly is your day-to-day or week-to-week schedule like? Yeah, so mostly I do clinical like mentoring. So when the residents are there, I try to, if they have any questions with patients, I'll help them with patient care and I will try to go over things with them. So I like to quiz them. So I'm kind of the notorious quizzer where I'll ask them a question and if they don't get it right, I make them look it up and then we'll (laughs) quiz them again and again until they get it. And then even two days later, if I see them, I'll ask them again. So I think some of them get a little scared, but um, for the most part, I think that that's a good way to learn. And the people who are toughest on me were the ones I learned the most from. So I try to be nice about it, but that's how I I kind of work. (laughs) Wow, that is rigorous. But I think that's such a great way to learn. I shadowed a neurologist once and he did the exact same thing. And yeah, it definitely makes a shadowing experience less passive. It's like you're putting them through the rigor of residency training early, but I'm sure they'll be more prepared. But going back to Durham, it's known to be one of the most competitive specialties in medicine and even has the reputation for being nearly impossible to match into. So of course you were successful in getting through the hurdles of the step one and step two exams, and you've always graduated at the top of your class. So do you mind filling us in on what study hacks you've used that can help achieve success in academics? Yeah, so I think when you study for board exams as much as I have and as much as my colleagues have, it really helps to study with a group of people. So I had a better time studying with people. It made it more fun. We were all kind of in it together, and that made it really helpful. Then questions, that was something I kind of wish I did more of. I sometimes I was really, really meticulous about going to class and reading, but sometimes you don't retain as much unless you're really quizzed. So I kind of recommend doing like a Q bank even from the beginning of medical school. So if you're doing anatomy, do some anatomy questions because then you're kind of holding yourself accountable in a different way than you would if you're just reading something. And so that really helps. The other thing is confidence. Really, one of my biggest struggles was I thought I was not good at standardized tests. I always felt like it was this big thing that I wasn't mm-hmm. good at. Like I didn't even watch my favorite show was 90210. And I never even watched the SAT episodes. Like even now, I don't watch it. I don't get time to watch it anymore. But I would probably skip that episode because I have so much test anxiety. So I would tell you that instead of having that anxiety, just realizing it's just a, it's just a like a stepping stone. It's really nothing more than that. And it's just testing how well you know the information, which you know it. And so you basically have to kind of write down uh, like a, a mantra that somebody taught me, which is I studied, I know the material and there's nothing I can't answer. And the other thing is not focusing on what you don't know. Just know, try to get two questions right. If you get two questions right, then you'll boost your confidence. Of course, you're going to get way more than two questions right. But you, once you get those two questions, that should be a little sign that, hey, I actually know this, rather than feeling bad about the one question you didn't get right. I just want to kind of follow up on that. What was your day-to-day kind of study hours having that maybe eight-hour block or that four-hour block or this Pomodoro technique, which has been very popular recently? Is there some study strategies that you used in terms of how you studied and how you structured it throughout your day? So I was kind of a studier, like an obsessive studier. So I studied many hours a day, probably more than I should be saying, because I don't think that was necessarily 
the most effective. But what I would do, even since college, was we would study for maybe 50 minutes and then we would take like like five, 10 minutes of like a dance party. That's so, so we cool. got we got our blood, yeah, we got our blood pumping, we embarrassed ourselves, we had a great time, and it made us just be happier to study again. And so I think that really, really helped. I wasn't formal in terms of any methods, but I just I was really disciplined about studying. Also studying right after you learn a subject, like if you had a lecture on something, maybe in the break, just reviewing the big points, because then it just kind of solidifies what you learned in class. Yeah. uh, Did this kind of discipline transition over to your attending life? How do you maintain the balance between your personal life and the life as an attending? Does the discipline carry over? Yes, it does to some extent, but it is a whole new ball game, and I'm learning it every day, being like a new mom and trying to be present for the baby, but, you know, trying to also be really present as a doctor and not letting it bleed into each other kind of is, it's tough. It's a challenge, but I think just being a disciplined person in general does help because you want to make it happen. And so if you want to make it happen, it happens for the most part. Yeah, definitely. Also, congratulations on being a new mom. (laughs) Would you say that it's still possible to maintain a balance with interest outside of medicine, such as keeping up with dance or any other hobbies? Actually, this is really interesting. You're a matchmaker. Do you mind elaborating on that? Yeah. So yeah, dance was just kind of something I've done since childhood. Um, But matchmaking is something for me, it took me, I was just graduating residency when I met my husband. But for the most part, I find it really difficult to meet people. And I keep meeting these amazing women that are just amazing. And they're single. And it's just kind of like, why? Like, where are these guys? And so one of my friends, she, uh, she was looking for somebody, she was doing her residency in New Mexico, and just not meeting even friends, let alone potential husbands, I guess. And I thought about introducing her to my husband's cousin. And so I got them talking on Facebook and then, uh, you know, just kind of did some behind the scenes work and they're actually married right now. I think they've been married for over a year. So I made one, one marriage and apparently this is a genetic, not a genetic trait, but a family trait because even my mother-in-law is a matchmaker. And so she match made her brothers and sisters. And so I kind of want to carry on the tradition. Yeah, I mean, matchmaking is a is a predominant phenomena in the Southeast Asian culture. Uh, you know, I've seen it firsthand. So it's it's pretty interesting to kind of see it over here as well. Yeah, without pressure, like without putting too much pressure. But I feel like love is one of the most important things besides health. So it's something that could really impact somebody's life. So if you could make it happen for them, that would be great. And if you know any eligible guys, I have a lot of really amazing women that are looking. So <laughs> yeah, that's quite an impact to have on someone's life. That's really wonderful. But actually going back to medicine, if you had to do this all over again, the med school process, the residency and just everything, would you? And or what would you do differently? Yes. For me, I would. It was a no brainer. It was the best decision for me. But some people get burnt out. And that can be tough for for some people. For me, my specialty kind of is so diverse and unique and just so many different things I'm doing on a daily basis that I don't really get bored of it. Um, So for me, it's like a clear no brainer. But had I done it all over again, I think I would have had a little more fun during during the whole process. Like yeah, like studying abroad. Or maybe not feeling this pressure crunch of needing to do it now, like taking a gap year isn't really the end of the world. You know, like going and traveling, I kind of wish I did more of that because you always feel like you're going to be so old when you get done. But to be honest, you still have your whole life ahead of you. So 
kind of taking it slower, maybe stopping and smelling the roses a little more would be good advice, I think. Yeah, I mean, with the whole COVID situation, what's going on right now is that we're kind of hitting this pause. Uh, Some students are hitting the pause and they feel like they need to take a gap year and they're not very confident with taking gap year. But then it's it's becoming more and more apparent that taking gap year is actually pretty good for for students going into medical school. Yeah, I remember getting because I didn't really take a gap year. And I remember one of my program directors telling me that I just seemed young. And I think that sometimes a little bit of wisdom and maturity and maybe life experience is not a bad idea because medicine is such a commitment and you kind of want to get everything, um, you know, any of your whims out of the way before, because then once you have kids and you settle down, it's a lot harder to do those things. Like you couldn't, you know, backpack across Europe after you have a child. It's a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah, backpacking with a toddler isn't quite the ideal traveling experience. But in relevance to experiences, has there been a prominent life moment that impacted your view on medicine or further fueled the passion to go into medicine? Um, yeah, actually. So a family member that's really close to me got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And it's kind of an interesting story. In medical school, I was a pretty good student. And I remember reading about ovarian cancer, and it was called the silent killer. And basically, by the time it's caught, it's too late. And so it was a real nightmare of mine. And in fact, some of my family members, I told them to get screen for it. But the problem is cancer, like anything else can happen at, an, at any time. But it really is something that's so near and dear to my heart. It's almost like I've become an honorary gyne onk because I study so much of that. I actually should be studying more dermatology, but because this is kind of stolen my heart, basically. And what I would like to say about it is it is caught late because a lot of the symptoms are so nonspecific. And I remember kind of just thinking, well, it's too late. But now in retrospect, I don't think it has to be too late. I think we can catch it early. So certain things that I would really recommend all my doctors out there to look out for is anytime somebody has bloating, constipation, diarrhea, um, bladder or urinary issues, and back pain, really look into things like ovarian cancer. It isn't screened on a pap smear. So you can't just get a pap smear and every year you think that they're checking it out, but they're not always that great at the biomanual exam. It really depends on how good the doctor is. And that is a hard thing. The ovaries are pretty small at the beginning, you know, in a normal human. Um, But what happens is I think just relying on a biomanual exam isn't good enough. I think that honestly, I hope that there's going to be recommendations for pelvic ultrasounds and CA-125s, which are cancer markers used for follow-up, not diagnosis. But maybe if we added it to a routine blood work, even though you know you have to take it with a grain of salt, it might be a good way to follow it up. I know um, a family friend of mine had it, had it, the CA-125 and it was elevated and they just didn't they didn't pay attention to it. And unfortunately she passed away, but um, a lot of women are dying to this and they don't have to. So I think Another thing we could do to prevent it is getting genetic testing. I don't think that's recommended yet by all physicians, but I honestly am part of the poll to recommend it for all patients, all people. It's called color genomics is the test I personally took. Uh, So I found out that the BRCA mutation runs in my family. It encodes breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Angelina Jolie made it really famous because she removed her breasts and her ovaries because she had the gene. And it is one of those things that if you know you have the gene, you can really prevent um, future problems, including other genes that encode other cancers. So color genomics, it's about $200. I recommend everyone get it because if you know you have the gene, you might be able to prevent a horrible disease like ovarian cancer. 
First and foremost, I'm so sorry for your loss, but thank you so much for raising awareness on this and, of course, for providing insight on the color genomics genetics test. I think there's also times that these genetic tests, they're actually on sale, um, you know, things like Christmas uh, sale. I know that another program, uh, 23andMe, they kind of sell their genetic test over the Christmas time. So that's also something to actually look out for. It might cost some money, but I think it's definitely helpful, as you just said. Disclaimer. So this is MD from the future. And I just wanted to just hop by to say that uh, after doing some research, we actually found that 23andMe is not really that reliable for genetic mutations. So as Dr. Atalay said, uh, I think the best way to actually go forward with this is color genomics or anything else that is recommended by a doctor. Yeah. And, but the only thing is don't be reassured by, you know, uh, the only reason why I recommended color genomics is because that was, I did a clinical trial through Memorial Sloan Kettering and they recommended it, but there might be more accurate ones uh, than 23andMe and color genomics, but just know that it is available and it might be worth just doing. And also asking your doctor to advocate for you to get that tested. Yeah, and honestly, this story, uh, it's just so unfortunate to hear and the whole phenomena of this being caught late. So a follow-up question to this is, does being a doctor kind of help you cope better with family instances? Is it easier to detach yourself from a devastating situation at hand and kind of take a look at it through a third-person perspective because you have seen this medical experience firsthand so many times? Yes and no. I would actually say more no in a way because because you know how cancer affects somebody personally, it really is very different than when you're just kind of diagnosing a person with it. As much as you can empathize, it's you can't really until it affects your life the way it has. And so I would really say, um, you know, like anytime I have to give a patient a diagnosis, like a melanoma that's that's aggressive or, you know, a Merkel cell carcinoma, which is another aggressive type of cancer, it affects me in a way that didn't affect me before. It affected me always before, but just, it just, you feel like you're crushing someone's life. But I've come to kind of look at the day of the diagnosis as actually a positive thing. And that's the day that you have a fighting chance because it, before that you didn't even know. So you're actually doing a huge favor for people, but it does come with the burden of being the deliverer of bad news or having to hear it from your patients from other diagnoses that they've received in their lives. Yeah. And I think you just captured this so beautifully, the change in perspective, right? Giving them that fighting chance. So seeing it through a different kind of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one other thing that you mentioned, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, the whole phenomenon of burnout. So how do you personally mediate the experience to to not get hold of you? How do you not let this, this stressful situation or any stressful situations that has to deal with becoming a doctor and treating patients, how do you not let that get to you? Yeah, I'm still working on it, to be honest. It's, it's a struggle, but I think that what I'm trying to do is kind of focus on the good because no matter what is going wrong, you also have a lot of good going on. And medical advances are getting better every day. Literally every day, things are changing. And so kind of just staying hopeful for the future and also just just knowing that the more you diagnose, the more you're going to help somebody in the long run and that you are making a difference in the world. And that's really cool because you don't always get to say that. So that's really cool. And then also just being supported by a good family and friends and a good social network um, and just being strong within yourself like you have yourself and so no matter what 
everything's going to go well because you're doing it the best you can. Yeah, 100%. Do you recommend dermatology uh, to pre-meds? Yeah, I do. But I, I think the most important thing is to be a good general doctor. I really do. I think that if you're not a good general doctor, you can't possibly be a good dermatologist because dermatology sometimes, although we're dealing with the bread and butter, acne, skin cancer, things like that, it doesn't mean that there isn't systemic involvement and things that you need to know based on general medicine, whether it be prescriptions that you're writing or somebody's pregnant and you're dealing with that. So I think really for pre-med, don't hone in on dermatology um, at the beginning. I would say just be very broad, learn medicine, learn the fundamentals, learn the biochemistry, learn the science, learn, you know, after you learn the science, then you're learning basics of every single system, whether pulmonary, respiratory, which is the same, or like nephrology, any of them, just learn all of them really, really well, because no matter what, it's going to impact you in some way, whether it be a patient that has renal failure that also has itching or liver cancer and now has jaundice, you know, there's a lot of correlation. So um, really putting that all together really helps. Thank you for all that advice. And just to wrap up on a final note, as per the title of this podcast, right before our guest physicians check out of the doctor's in, we ask them to give us a favorite quote or just a saying that they abide by through life. And so what quote would you like to share or what advice would you give? There are two quotes that have really helped me out and hopefully will help your listeners. The first one is about how life is a marathon and that you don't need to sprint. And this is something that my dad used to tell me when I was having a bad day, if I was worried about a test score, if I was worried about an upcoming exam or upcoming interview. He said, life is a marathon. There's no need to sprint. And basically, that helped because I realized, you know, just one day at a time, we don't have to worry about what's going to happen if something doesn't work out or if something didn't work out. Overall, it'll all even out and life works out. And the second one is the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And that is by Eleanor Roosevelt. And I love that because it basically says that, you know, you're only going to achieve anything if you have a dream. And so if you think about what you really, really, truly want, then that's the biggest step in trying to achieve it. And you can achieve it by just putting your mind into that dream. And hopefully that will help you guys as it has helped me. And I wish everyone luck and please contact me if you need anything. Thank you. And so just thank you so much for your time, Dr. Adelie. And it's just so incredible to have you here to talk about dermatology and to bring awareness to this phenomena that needs to be addressed. Thank you guys so much. I'm really impressed with your maturity and just how amazing you guys have been. So it's been a pleasure working with you and please reach out anytime. Great. Thank you so much. And a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Dr. Zen. All the show notes can be found at www.drzenpodcast.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.